book recommendation. I usually don't pull out the big, fat, four-volume systematic theologies as my book recommendations. And the reason for that is I don't think it's realistic to expect you to read four vol- a four-volume systematic theology. Um, but I'm making an exception with this book specifically because it's written in such a way that I think most church members can use this and follow it. It's also written... Now, you have to keep in mind what a layperson looked like 300 years ago in the Netherlands. Probably different than in America. So that means you would read it more slowly. But this is Wilhelmus Abrakel. I might even be saying his name wrong. Sorry. And uh, the book is called A Christian's Reasonable Service. This is the first volume. The thing that makes this book stand out is that he's almost, he's as interested in how the doctrine of God turns into worship as he is in the doctrine of God. So he will talk about God being triune, but he will always seem to go back to this question of how does this aid your worship, Christian? How does this help you as a family to worship God better? Um, How does this feed your worship? How does this fill you with joy knowing this doctrine? So he'll do application in the book where he'll say, hey, what's the doctrine of God's providence? And then he'll tell you, and it's not the simplest reading, But then when you get to the end, he's going to say, here's how you apply the doctrine of God's providence in your life. And so he does some things that, you know, if you read Herman Bovink, for example, who is probably my favorite, he's not going to do that. And and actually, I think he's a little more readable than Bovink. And he writes this intending for families to benefit from it. So I would just encourage you, take a look through here. See if you think the language in here is something that you can handle and consider the book. Consider uh, reading A Brockle, A Christian's Reasonable Service. I actually, when I was back in Mississippi, I had a church member who wanted to do some deep reading, and he asked me for a recommendation. I recommended this book. He bought all four volumes. We started reading it together. I came up here, and he wrote to me about two months ago, and he said, hey, I just want you to know I finished volume four. So he actually finished the whole thing. He read all four volumes. Uh, I don't even do that. I just jump through and read what I'm interested in. So... Here you go, Craig. You can just send it all around and let everybody gawk at it. Yeah, read the whole thing first and then pass it to the next person. <laughs> um, I, I don't do a lot of promoting systematic theologies here, and I don't want to overwhelm you and make you think that's the only stuff that a Christian should read. Um, so I try to bring some variety. So there you go. Yeah. That is a set. It's about 100 bucks for the set. Yeah. More? Okay. Well, I bought it for 100 bucks. <laughs> How is it used? Yeah, people, people, people keep it. Uh, you can also buy it in Logos. If any of you are Logos users, you can buy it in Logos for a reasonable price as well. So, um, so we're going to talk about the book of Acts. We finished talking about the Synoptic Gospels. Now, I know you're thinking, well, there's the Gospel of John. We didn't get to the Gospel of John. We're going to deal with the writings of John separately later on in the class. Uh, there's some stuff that makes John distinctive, John's Gospel, John's Letters, John's uh, book, of, book of Revelation. Uh, all of those books uh, are going to go together. So we're going to do them as a group. So what we've done is we talked about the Synoptic Gospels. We talked about the life of Jesus. And now I want to talk about the book of Acts, which is basically the sequel to which book? Yeah, it's the sequel to the book of Luke. So um, it is 
Um, if you want to know what happened immediately after Jesus ascended into heaven, this is the only historical narrative document that's going to fill those details in for you. You, ha- you have to read the gospel, uh, the book of Acts. Uh, the events in this book take place between 33 and 62 AD approximately. That is the, the time frame of this book. Uh, this is a story about the growth of the church from a small sect in Judaism into a worldwide movement. The book begins right after the resurrection, and it takes us all the way to the, to the city of Rome. And there, there Paul is, and he's sitting under house arrest in Rome, waiting to see Caesar. Uh, this book is a story of the emergence of Christianity from the kernel of Judaism. This is where Christianity comes into its full flourishing. Uh, This book is a story about the spread of salvation from this one world religion, Judaism, to the rest of the world, Gentiles. You'll notice, though, that I want to talk about it in terms of flowering, in terms of sprouting, uh, because I don't like the idea of talking about transformation. Christianity didn't transform from one thing into another. Christianity is the full maturation of what was already begun in Judaism, and that's what you see in the book of Acts. It was always the plan for these things to happen this way. So what you see, the church that happens and emerges in the book of Acts is not a separate, strange, distinct church. This is the church, just like it was always supposed to be. Uh, If you see a little tiny seed get planted in the ground and you also see a great oak tree, uh, that that is the same thing. That's not like a different thing. Uh, it is the tree. And that's the way Christianity is. You know, Judaism is the seed that gets placed in the ground. Christianity is what emerges. And it's all, it's all of one part. Um, the book begins in Jerusalem. Geographically, this book varies over quite a time frame. It also varies geographically. The book begins in Jerusalem. It ends in Rome. For um, the uh, Jewish people, this would have been the ends of the world, right? This would have been as far as they could could even picture. This would be the ends of the earth. Uh, And so because of that, I hope that the book of Acts is a book that you're interested in. I hope it's a book that you've already read before. I had a chance to preach through the book of Acts a few years ago, and I absolutely loved it. It it was just a, a treasure of a book and a treasure to really, like, as a preacher, when you go through and you're just carefully going through the different parts of Acts, just... Nothing beats it. It's, it's, you know, you can go through it with a fine-tooth comb and just keep finding great things the more you go through it. Um, the author of the book. Let's talk authorship. So uh, the author of the book of Acts is Luke the Physician. Uh, technically, the book is anonymous. It doesn't have a name attached to it. The author never says his own name. Uh, but you can tell a few things about him as you read the book of Acts. One is that he is technically proficient uh, as a writer. He writes good literary Greek um, you can conclude this is the same author as Luke since he addresses the same fellow, Theophilus, and is consciously following up his story of the life of Jesus. Um, the author of the book, you know that you can see things in the narrative where he doesn't show up in the book of Luke, but he does show up in the book of Acts. In the narrative, you see that he accompanies the people in the narrative at various points. Frequently, he speaks in the second person plural. He talks about we did this, we did that, uh, we went here, we went there. Um, Got a long list of texts where he does that. I won't uh, belabor you with them, but if you want them, I can give them to you. Um, But Luke's name is never mentioned. All those mentioned in the narrative can be ruled out as the author because of the we statements. So you know whoever the author is. It's not 
You're right, because he's not writing in third person and second person. He's either writing as himself or he's not writing himself in, and his name never comes up. Um, we know Luke was with Paul during the time period when he wrote Colossians, Philemon, Ephesians, and Philippians because Paul mentions Luke in the books as he's writing them. So we know that he's traveling with him during that time. And what this means is that he was with Paul during the sections in Acts when the we statements take place. So if you take the, look at those and then you look at Paul's letters, what you see is that they overlap with these locations. That, that's internal evidence that Luke's the author. Uh, external evidence that Luke is the author. The best thing we can do is point to tradition in the early church. Tradition points to Luke as the companion of Paul. This is early. This is unchallenged. The Muratorian canon, Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, and Eusebius all agree that Luke is the author of the book of Acts. Um, Luke's authorship is virtually unchallenged in church history. There's really not um, a scholarly debate taking place uh, arguing that Luke is not the author of the book of Acts. So that's authorship. Um, as far as date goes, as date of authorship goes, well, let's just do a little logic just for a moment. If the last events in the book of Acts take place in, in uh, 62 AD, then what's the earliest that Acts would be written probably? Oh. Yeah, 62.1, right? <laughs> because, the spoiler alert, the book doesn't have an ending in a sense, right? You don't get to find out what happens to Paul. Paul is in prison. And you almost like, if Paul died or if Paul was executed or something happened to Paul... It's very reasonable to think that Luke would have included that and made sure that we know the ending. Because it's a book where 50%, probably 65% of the book is following Paul. Very strange to leave out that ending if it's there. So the reason the ending is there is because it hasn't been, it isn't there is because it hasn't been written yet when the book of Luke is being written. Um, a few other things, a few other reasons why we would expect the date of the writing of, of Acts to be very early. Um, by the way... This also means that Luke would have been early, right? Because if Luke is written before Acts and he is self-consciously writing a sequel to the book of Luke, then you can be sure that Luke is earlier than this. Whenever that book is composed, could be 10 years before, could be one year before, we don't know. But it's fair to say that Luke is also a very early gospel being written. Um, so we know, what's that? When did Paul die? I'm so glad you asked that. That was the very next thing in my notes. He's <laughs> martyred by Nero in 64. Okay. So Paul is, Paul is dead by 64 AD. Um, if Paul had died as a martyr for Jesus, by the time that this book was written, it would have made no sense for Luke to leave him out. Just wouldn't. So um, we also know a few other things. So you have a few things. The things that are missing sometimes say more than the things that are included. And there's something else really big. That's missing from the book of Acts. If it was written much later. What would that event be? All of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. All of the 70 AD. <laughs> destruction of Jerusalem. Destruction of the temple. It's 9-11 for the Jewish people. Right? It's like. Actually it's bigger than 9-11 for the Jewish people. It's bigger. Uh, you know. It's the destruction of Mariupol for the Jewish people. This is flat. Uh, it's gone. It's not there at all. Again, these are things that if you, if, you, if you were Luke, including the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple would be amazing. Because 
For example, Stephen gives a speech in Acts chapter 7, and the point of Stephen's speech is, hey, Jewish people, stop being obsessed with the temple. The temple's not the center of the world. The temple's not the center of you guys. God goes with his people wherever they are. He doesn't stay put. He doesn't stay in one place. And the whole point that he's making is to devalue the temple so that they will realize that Jesus is the temple and it doesn't matter where they live anymore. So he's, he's moving them away from Jerusalem. Could you imagine what a punctuation point it would make for the destruction of the temple to be included at the end of the book of Acts? I mean, it completely makes so many points. And it's not there. And I, I think it's not there because it hasn't happened yet when the book of Acts is written. Um, is that an argument that's going to persuade a skeptic? No, because again, you can always find wiggle room and maybe they would find a reason why he wouldn't include it. But I find it to be a factor. I find it a factor for the early dating. Um, other factors for an early date. Luke doesn't include material from Paul's letters. You can imagine a lot of biographical material in Paul's letters that would have been very useful in the compiling of this. Luke is very careful to make a, a specific historical record of these things. How useful would it have been to actually have the first person narratives of Paul talking about his encounter with Peter or talking about other things? And he doesn't use any of that. And I, I suspect the reason is because it's, it may be, they may have been written, but they're not in wide circulation yet. Um, uh, Luke also doesn't mention Nero's persecution that takes place in 64 AD. Just, just things that are missing. Things that are missing if the book is written later. So, so I'm very persuaded this book was written very close to the events portrayed in the book. Um, it's possible that some of the material at the beginning of Acts is written closer to the events. It's possible that these things are being written closer you know, as they're happening. And maybe when he gets to 62, he's like, I'm not, I'm not writing anymore. I'm sending this out. Um, but that's, that's speculation. Um, but here's what it means, though. If Jesus is crucified in 33 AD, and if this book is written in 62 AD, that means that this book is written within 30 years of all the events. Uh, some of them incredibly close, right? One of them probably written within a year or so of the event, right? The imprisonment of Paul and everything that's happening there. It might explain why later in the book there's actually more material related to Paul. Right? Because it's chronologically closer to the time the book is being written. Maybe Luke knows more. Um, but regardless, the, the book is kind of split into two. In fact, what I'm going to do is I'm going to address, I'm going to talk about the book in two halves. What I'd like to do is talk about the first part of Acts today. And then if we don't get to the second part, we'll do the second part uh, next week. Uh, I want to talk about the book of Acts in uh, chunks of chapter 1 to 12. And then next week, I want us to look at chapters 13 to 28. So we'll just sort of look at the narrative and what takes place there. Um, if nothing else, this makes it more manageable because the narrative shifts at chapter 13 and suddenly starts focusing much more on the Apostle Paul. So um, here's the deal. Acts takes us on a whirlwind tour of the, of the early church, right? This is a book that takes us to all these far-flung places. It takes us to Cyprus. It takes us to Syria. It takes us to Samaria, to Jerusalem. Uh, Greece, Macedonia, Asia Minor, Antioch, uh, and eventually Rome. This is a, if you like the, if you like uh, those movies that are like, like world hopping, going from island to, to island, different places, this is it. This is, this is your book. This is your island hopping, adventuring uh, book. It's even got a shipwreck in it. And that's what I tried to, that's my sell, selling point with the kids when I tell them this book has a shipwreck in it. Um, so chapters 1 to 12 focus on the birth of the church immediately following the resurrection. 
It shows us, very importantly, it shows us the outbreak of persecution against the church that happens from Judaism. Uh, You'll notice that the persecution of the church that takes place, generally speaking, doesn't come from the secular authorities. What do the secular authorities think the Christians are when they look at them? They think they're Jews. And they are, right? (laughs) And what has the Roman government said about Judaism? At this point, they're a protected class. They said, look, part of the way that we don't have the Jewish people going to war with us is if we've made a strange peace with them. Uh, we're going to rule over them. They're not going to go to war with us and we're going to recognize their religion and we're going to give them the freedom to do that. So when Christians emerge from that, from that seed of Judaism and the Romans look at them and they go, hey, look, look at these Jewish people. You know, they care. They have this prophet that they follow, but they're still they're still a part of Judaism. And so generally speaking, the secular authorities leave them alone. But who is it that has the most trouble with the Christians? It's the Jewish people specifically, right? And so um, that's what we see. We actually see the persecution. And so in the first half of the book, the persecution comes from the Jewish people. Second half of the book, persecution comes from the secular authorities. Um, As you move farther away from from Jerusalem, you can see you're going to run into trouble no matter what. But now you know who it is. It's... it's, uh, it's the, the secular leaders. So although there are a lot of important people in the first 12 chapters, and uh, undoubtedly, though, one figure, one person stands out head and shoulder above the rest in the narrative, and that is the Apostle Peter. Peter stands out in, this, in the first 12 chapters in a way nobody else really does. Right? Peter takes center stage in chapter 1 after the ascension. He's the one who speaks at Pentecost in chapter 2. Peter and John are the ones who raise the lame beggar. Peter preaches again in chapter 3. Peter and John are arrested in chapter 4 for preaching the gospel. Uh, Peter is the one who pronounces judgment on Ananias and Sapphira for sinning against the Holy Spirit in chapter 5. Uh, Peter is among the apostles who get arrested in chapter 5 and then released. One of my favorite verses, it says that they were rejoicing that they'd been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. They just have the right attitude towards suffering, right? They have the right attitude towards persecution. Uh, chapter 7, what happens? The, the, the attention turns to Stephen and his death at the hands of Paul and the crowd that are with him. By the way, Saul is just an Aramaic variation of the name Paul. Um, get out of your head the idea that he changed his name or something you know we think of that with abraham and abram we think oh there's been a name change here when hebrew people are talking to saul he's saul because that's his hebrew name when greek people are talking to paul he's paul um greek paul is just the greek version of that name and saul shaal is just the hebrew name and so depending on who's talking to you they're going to say the name differently so anyway if any of you got really attached to that name change and wanted to know where it happened, it just, just doesn't, that, it doesn't happen anyway. Um, that, that's also, by the way, you can tell who Paul's letters are, right? Paul's letters are written to Greeks. And so who does, what does he call himself when he writes to, to Greek people? He calls, him, calls his name Paul. Um, so chapters 8 to 9 focus on the conversion of, of a eunuch from Ethiopia uh, and the conversion of a Pharisee whose name is... Saul or Paul, right? <laughs> um, and then he, and then the narrative goes back to Peter again. So here's the interesting thing. Paul converts, Paul, Paul is converted, you know, 
There was nobody in the history of the church converted in the way that Paul really was, right? He is one of the most, the most forceful and obviously uh, reluctant conversions you ever saw is the Apostle Paul. And it's interesting. Paul converts and he disappears from the narrative. Uh, he, he disappears. You don't, you don't see him again for a number of years. Um, and then uh, the narrative goes back to Peter. So you, they get the conversion in and then let's go back to Peter. And then Peter finds himself at the center of God's purposes in chapters 10 and 11. Because what's he doing in chapter 10 and 11? The Gentiles are now hearing the gospel. And the Gentiles are now receiving the Holy Spirit. And scandal breaks out. Because the Jewish people are trying to figure out how do we live with our, our uh, sensibilities, our rules about cleanliness, our rules about food, our rules uh, about our, our ceremonial laws. How do we do this if these Gentiles are part of all of this? And so you end up with this incredible debate, which we'll talk about, this incredible debate just dealing with the question of what do you do with a problem like, a, like the Gentiles? And they have to figure that out. It ends up becoming this massive focus of debate. Uh, Peter's at the center of that, though, because God's speaking to him. He gives him the revelation. Uh, He's the one that leads him to these Gentiles in the first place. And then in chapter 12, who does it focus on? It focuses on Peter again, because this time he gets miraculously released from prison. And that's where sort of the narrative uh, of chapters 1 to 12 are. This is very, this is the earliest days of the church here in these 12 chapters. You get to chapter 13 onward, and who are we focusing on now? We're, we're focusing on Paul. We're focusing on what he's doing. So I don't think we'll have time to get to Paul today, but we will next week. Um, so that's roughly the narrative. I want to talk about the themes. Any questions about the first 12 chapters? I know, you know, we're breezing through it because this is meant to be an overview. Not an in-depth study from verse to verse. Add on a question. Yeah. Earlier, you're talking about Paul's uh, martyrdom by Nero. Where do we find that historical account since it's not in Scripture? I don't remember. Eusebius. So, is it Eusebius? Yeah, church tradition. Yeah, and I know that the tradition is that there's there's like the the location. We I think know the location, and we know that he was beheaded. Uh, there's a post he would have been taken to. He would just have laid his head on the post and they would have done it right there. Um, but he would have been outside the city of Rome. And you can probably find little chunks of that post all over the <laughs> uh, That post? Is that what he said? You can, you can pray to it. And just, you can yeah. <laughs> probably found enough posts to uh, build many posts. You got it. Yeah. But there's a big splinter of it in a church Deep in Greece, and if you find it, you have healing power. <laughs> All right. Don't go to Jake for medical advice. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I won't even repeat that for the for those at home. <laughs> it's just our, it's our gift. It's it's the gift we got. Um, so what do we see, though, in the first 12 chapters? I'm, I'm not saying that the, that the chapters 13 to 28 don't do this, but it's really blatant in chapters 1 to 12. And the thing I want to I really highlight is, is one, one thing for sure is this. Um, 
It's this idea of the plan of God. Because one of the things you see is, is in Acts is that the author and also all of the participants in these early events are very self-conscious about what's happening. They, they have a sense that this, these events that are taking place are not accidents, that they're not happenstance, that they're not random. They have this very definite, I mean, at one point, it, uh, Peter, Peter says, look, Jesus is crucified by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, right? He's, he's convinced that the way Jesus died was the exact way that God planned him to be killed, the exact time that he was planned to be killed, and the exact way that he was planned to be killed. Peter is convinced of that. This was not an accident. None of it was. And then when Peter starts giving his speech in Acts chapter 2, what does he keep doing over and over and over again? He quotes the Old Testament text and said this had to happen because of this text of Scripture. So he's got this strong view of the sovereignty of God, of the plan of God. He's got this really strong view that everything that's taking place here is exactly the way that it was supposed to happen. And that... That, what that means is that as you're seeing people from different nations get converted and you see them go back to their homes, all of this is exactly the way that it was supposed to be. It was exactly the way it was supposed to be. So what is the plan that you actually see the seeds of planted throughout the Old Testament, specifically the plan that the gospel was going to reach Gentiles and that it was going to go to nations other than just Jerusalem? So it's just exploding, even in chapter 2. It's going out to these other nations from the very beginning, not as like a consequence of, oh, look, uh, we should probably go to other countries. Well, nobody decided it. God decided it. He decided to pick the day, Pentecost, when everybody's going to be in the city from all over the world. And that's the day that he was going to have the Holy Spirit break out among these people, change hearts, and send them back home to spread the gospel where they live. So not an accident. So that's one of the huge themes of, this, of the early chapters is the growth of the church from the beginning is on purpose, just the way it's supposed to be. Um, his plan is to rescue men and women, boys and girls from every tribe and tongue and nation, from Europe, Asia Minor, Africa, even the Far East. Um, the two biggest events in the book of Acts, uh, specifically the first 12 chapters, are rooted in the plan of God. Peter points to the crucifixion explicitly and says this is part of the plan of God uh, in chapter 10 of the book of Acts I'm going to read actually from this just because it's so fantastic it's a lengthy section but I'm going to read it anyway um, <clears throat> so here Peter's talking and he says Oh, no, that's Romans 10. Well, look, Romans 10 is great, but it's not what I was trying to read. Uh, I was thrown off for a minute there. So here's what happens. So Peter goes to Caesarea. There's a man named Cornelius, a centurion. Uh, He's a God-fearer. In other words, he's a Gentile who has these, he has a love for God. He loves the God of Israel, the God of the Jews. Uh, He gives alms. He's He's a man of prayer. This is a guy who, by every metric, we would look at him and go, wow, this is a guy who's just ready to hear about Jesus. And then he has a vision. 
And in the vision, the angel says to him, Cornelius, and he says, what is it, Lord? And this Gentile is hearing a message from the angel. And the angel says, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging and he tells him where to find Simon Peter. Uh, He says, go to this place. The angel spoke to him. He departs. He calls his servants, sends them off to Joppa. Okay, so the Gentiles have have received direct contact from God. And now they are to report to Peter. So the next day as they're on their journey, they're approaching the city. Peter went up on the house about the sixth hour to pray. These guys are on the way, but he doesn't know anything of that at the moment. And it says he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that's that's common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean... Do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So Peter's confused. What on earth just happened? Um, This vision, what does this mean? And it says, Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius stood at the gate. They called out and they asked whether Simon, who was called Peter, is there. Peter's thinking about this vision. The guys come inside. And then, then Peter hears the spirit say, rise, go down, accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And uh, it says they said Cornelius, a centurion, they introduce uh, Cornelius, they tell him about the dream that Cornelius had. It says the following day, uh, so Peter goes to see Cornelius, he enters, Peter met, Cornelius meets him, falls down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. This Gentile doesn't know what he's doing, right? Um, he's well-meaning, but he needs direction. Uh, and so he talked with them and he went in and found many persons gathered. He said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. So I'm doing something I'm not supposed to do here. At least I thought so. He says, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. In other words, by God's grace, it's now okay for me, a Jewish person to stand in your presence. It's okay for me to be here. And now the ceremonial things that separated us, this is the moment where that evaporates. So that's why this is, I think it's worth focusing on just for a moment, just to say, look what's happening here. The world is changing right before their eyes. So when I was sent, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. Notice God gives him the message before they come so that he's willing to go. Uh, Before he's got, he goes, look, I know I can't go, but now he says, now I can go. So here's, to make a long story short, the Gentiles hear the good news. They hear the gospel. Yeah, well, go ahead. Oh, I didn't want to interrupt. Oh, you don't want to interrupt? I, the, this is a happy narrative. It is. Yeah. So then, then uh, I have a question. All right, so the Gentiles hear the good news. And then it says in verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Um, then they, hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God, Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? He commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So there's the moment, right? Gentiles now are being baptized. Gentiles didn't get baptized before. 
Uh, now they're part of the church. They are as fully part of the church as Peter is, as anybody else in the church is. It's a monumental day. It's a big deal. What were you going to ask, Jake? Um, you had said that it was monumental that Peter was talking to Cornelius. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about the like the Jewish laws that would have prevented that? Like, well, what would happen? Well, it's interesting. If you look, listen to Jesus, listen to Peter's words again. He's standing there. Uh, let's see. I want to find the wording. So he says, "You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation." Um, I think that that is a that is a generalization because clearly you have interactions between Jews and Gentiles happen. What he's talking about is visiting, going into the home of of a, of a Gentile. Um, I, 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 my suspi- now I don't have my scripture references here, although I do see some, I don't have my scripture references to tell you what law he might be referring to. Maybe somebody else who's got a good study Bible could uh, do that for me. He wouldn't have been able to be share a meal. No. Yeah, they couldn't have shared a meal. Not under the same roof. No. Okay. So, I mean, in that sense, you see Jesus as pushing boundaries right. in his ministry. Right, he's going. He'll 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 go talk to a Gentile. He'll spend time with a Gentile. He talk to a Gentile woman, and a, uh, and it, all of that is gets causes whispers. Even the disciples are whispering to each other when Jesus is talking to that woman. You know, uh, eventually the plan is for them not only to uh, talk to each other, but to share meals together and to share the meal together. Right. Yeah, Larry. So there, it must have been not too tight a restriction. Otherwise, how are you having converts? <laughs> that are meeting at the temple in the outer court. Yeah, know, the court of the Gentiles. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I think Peter's speaking very generally to them. He's saying to them, hey, you know how we don't even spend time together? We don't go into each other's houses? I'm willing to come yeah. into your house, Cornelius. That's how I know God's been talking, and that's how you can be sure that I know that God's been talking to me. Wow. So. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. Um, but all of that's plan A. That's not God scrambling and going, well, what do we do now? The Jewish people didn't, didn't really buy into the Messiah. I guess we've got to go to the rest of the world. And that was my impression of how it happened for years. Um, I, I wasn't taught well in church about these things. I wasn't taught well to think about these things necessarily. Uh, and so, so for me, that was how I pieced it all together. I was just wrong. But that was, that was how I did it. Um, any of you think of this as plan B? Uh, am I the only one? <laughs> that, was, that was just what I... When in, the, in the absence of teaching on the subject, you know, I would ask my pastor when I was in Nazarene, even though I love my pastor, but I would ask him, how did Jewish people get saved before Jesus? And I never got a muddier answer than, than to a question like that. And the answer should have been by looking forward to the Messiah. And, and if he had done that, if he had said that, I would have been so clear. I would have been grateful. I would have I maybe even stopped asking questions. So maybe it was good that I didn't get an answer. I don't know. <laughs> Not to throw your pastor under the bus, but was that a deficiency of Nazarene theology? Or maybe it just your pastor wasn't up on? I don't know. Okay. Because I don't even, I, even if I spent years as a Nazarene, and I don't know, you know whether they had have a covenant theology background. I really couldn't tell you a lot about Wesleyan theology enough to really explain why it was like that. I have to assume that some Wesleyans had that. It had a good answer. If you went to Fred Sanders, who is Wesleyan and a really good theologian, I bet he'd give you a good solid answer on that. 
But <laughs> I don't know. Like, I think it would have been covenantal in some way. It would have said looking forward to Jesus, probably, is how Fred Sanders would probably say it. But. So when Adam believed in God and was working to him for righteousness, uh, was he looking for the Messiah at that point? Or, hmm? or was it so vague and so whatever? Or was he just believing God for the, you know, for the, you know, for the journey? I think he knows that there's a savior coming. Yeah. Because he's he's heard the the in Genesis three fifteen, you have the early gospel, the proto evangelium announced to him that the serpent crusher is gonna come. And he knows that. Adam and Eve at least have got a basic gospel message that a savior is gonna come and redeem you from what just happened here. Whether Adam and Eve are in heaven, I don't know. I know that there's there are church traditions one way or the other about it. I remain indifferent. Somebody could convince me that they're in yeah. heaven if there was a Bible sure verse. Adam, or, <clears throat> Adam, I meant Abraham. You know, mm. Abraham believed that saved him at that, at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Scripture says he um, rejoiced to see him. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Abraham saw Jesus' day. He rejoiced and he saved by looking forward to Jesus. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's one of the themes of the book is, is simply the question, the idea of the plan. Right, the plan of God, and the plan of God is happening. Uh, another major theme of the book is the, the theme of salvation. How do I get saved? Super basic human question, what must I do to be saved? You have people asking that question, what must I do to be saved? Well, the very question of being saved, of course, implies this question of being saved from something. It, it implies this question of to be saved implies danger that someone gets rescued out of. And this whole question really is, is central. How can I be saved? It is the question that every human being has to wrestle with. It is the question that every single person, when they realize they're going to die someday, has to pass through their mind. What must I do to be saved? How can I be saved? Where can I find salvation? And the, the univocal answer that you find in the book of Acts is over and over again, people are pointing everybody they talk to, to Jesus. Oh, with one voice. Yeah, sorry. With one voice, they are all saying the same thing. Without question. So Acts 2.21. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Uh, Acts 4.12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. We're going to go outside of chapter 12. We're going to go to 13 and 16 here. Um, Acts 13, 26, it is to us that the message of salvation has been sent. Salvation, right? Um, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household, Acts 16, you will be saved. Um, Acts 28, 28, God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles. So just over and over again, you have this theme of being saved, of knowing salvation, and being pointed to Jesus repeatedly over and over again. Now, with two minutes left, I'm going to point out the last theme that really deserves much more attention. And I try to give it a lot of attention in our liturgy. I try to give it a lot of attention in our prayers in the church. It's something that Calvinists are supposed to be famous for not liking and not caring about. It's just not true. And it's the Holy Spirit. Uh, you know, there are Pentecostals have their thing and they are famous for talking a lot about the Holy Spirit and having a lot of experiences with the Holy Spirit. But I hope that we talk about the spirit enough at this church that you are persuaded that we fully and truly and really believe in the Holy Spirit and the importance of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. But you read the book of Acts 
And you cannot read this book without being struck by the presence and work of the Holy Spirit. He is all over this book. Uh, The prophetic activity takes place in the early church doing a few things. If you want to just sort of group them together, one of the things that that he's doing is he's emboldening, emboldening the early church witness. So these early Christians are not afraid. They, they rejoice when you know, somebody without the spirit would just be in sorrow and they'd collapse. Um, you know, he, is, he is solidifying their conviction so that they can suffer and not, not fold in the face of that persecution. The second thing that he's doing is he's guiding the apostles in their ministry. They're hearing from God. He's telling them what to do. Uh, You even have chapter 10 here where Peter is hearing from God. The Holy Spirit is speaking to him, giving him direction. Uh, That's not regular. That's not the ordinary way that Christians are guided. But it is the way that God guided the apostles. Uh, You have miraculous activity on the part of the Holy Spirit. What is he doing in just these first few chapters? He's healing people, raising people from the dead. You have chapter 2 where the gift of tongues is being given, where these people are hearing others speaking in actual languages, not made up languages. They're speaking in actual languages that other people understand. They're able to interpret and understand one another. Um, It is miraculous. It is meant to be something that takes place in this time, specifically revealing Christ to the people who need to hear about him. Um, And then plus on top of that, what is God doing? He's undoing the Tower of Babel, right? Tower of Babel, what happens? Everybody speaks in all these different languages. Nobody understands each other. People can't cooperate anymore. People have trouble getting along. And then what do you have in Jerusalem? You have the complete unwinding of Babel. And now all of these people are hearing one another, perhaps some of them for the first time. Uh, Beautiful moment. And this is the Holy Spirit that's causing that to happen. You also have, I want to just mention this one last thing and then we'll go because we're out of time. You see the regenerative activity of the Spirit. When I say regenerative, what I mean is taking people who were spiritually dead and bringing them to spiritual life. You see in the text, um, is it Lydia? I'm trying to remember the language that's used of Lydia when she believes. Um, But what you see over and over again is when people come to believe in Christ, that it is the work of the Holy Spirit in their life that's doing that. How else do you account for thousands of people converting all at once uh, in Acts chapter 2? You try to give a human explanation for that, you're going you're to fall flat. And you're going to try to just talk like they've been manipulating people. The only real explanation for that many conversions, for what takes place in the book of Acts, is the presence of the Holy Spirit regenerating people, quickening people's hearts, causing them to love Jesus and confess their sins. It's also the same people who just crucified him. Same city, same, same crowds, yeah. It's not like a, a new group of... Like all the willing people are now coming out. Yeah. yeah, many of their hearts are cut by what they've done. There's regret, there's sorrow. Um, you're going to have a mixed crowd. Some people didn't have anything to do with it probably, and many that did. Um, but the Holy Spirit is all over this book. And so it would, be, it would be remiss if I didn't mention that as well. Uh, I would love to give an opportunity for questions, but we're out of time. And then we've got um, the new members class right after this. So my request would be, if you're not here for the new members class, just talk outside. I know it's hard to wait till you get outside, but just talk outside. Or because then we'll have a later start, and then we'll all have to be here till six o'clock, and we don't want that. So, uh, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your Son uh, to die for our sins. 
to bring us salvation. We also thank you, O God, for your Holy Spirit, whom you have sent to change our hearts, to quicken our hearts, to cause us to follow after Jesus where before we would not have done it. We, we praise you, God, that you are gracious and kind and that all of this is your plan worked out. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Thank you.